I know I have, but I'm strange that way. And I think about what would that week look like? See, on Good Friday, we remember one day, one moment, the pivotal moment in all of the Bible, but the reality is so much happened that last week of Jesus's life. So what I'd like to do with our time together this evening is to talk about and go through briefly, because it's hard, it would be hard to cover everything. Um, we'll get to more of it as we go through the Gospel of Mark, continue through the Gospel of Mark, but I'd like to go through Jesus's last week on earth. My message doesn't have a title, but I think we will cover what Jesus wanted to do in his last week. And the, the saying that come, came to mind is he was setting things in order. We'll run tonight in four parts. Part one, the day after Palm Sunday. So when Jesus came in, we talked about it on Sunday, riding on the donkey and, and people were proclaiming the king is here and he allowed himself to be recognized as not just someone important in their day and age, but actually as God who was coming to rescue people. It says that he came all the way into Jerusalem, went all the way to the temple, looked around, and then left. It was a very anticlimactic entrance. Went back out to where he stayed every night the whole week. He didn't stay in Jerusalem once. He would go out of the walls of the city. And he was staying with friends in the little outskirts of Jerusalem called Bethany. And on Monday morning, Jesus began to set the church in order. He went back into Jerusalem, went straight to the temple. Maybe you've read about this and in the Bible, but it says the first thing he did is he turned over tables in the temple. He was setting his church in order because there were some at the temple mount that were ripping people off. See, this was Passover week, and so people would come from all over the country, and they would come to the temple, and they would bring a sacrifice and there were those at the temple that were supposed to represent God's heart to the people. But they would look, they saw it as an opportunity to make money. And they would look at someone's sacrifice and they would say something like, oh, nice try, but it's not good enough. But lucky for you, today and today only, special price. And when Jesus saw that, he turned over the tables and he had some things to say. He said, this place is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. He spent all Monday and all of Tuesday at the temple teaching people about the kingdom of God, about who to be... The, who to be, how to live as the people of God, and what to look out for. 
It is in this time that Jesus looked over and saw a single widow putting two pennies into the offering box and another man putting gobs of cash in there. And Jesus makes this statement, I tell you the truth, she put in the most. And they say, how was that? So he's teaching about the kingdom of God, about what he values, because he said what she is giving is from all that she has. It is such a big offering to her. Tuesday, he taught a lot about what to be looking out for to these people in the future. He actually said that the temple that they were looking at was going to be destroyed, and he talks through what that would look like. And that came to pass about 40-some-odd years later in the year 70 A.D. And then on Tuesday night, we'll pick up the story. Tuesday night, he leaves Jerusalem back out to Bethany, and we find ourselves sitting around a dinner table. Now, as far as setting the church in order, this dinner tells us so much about who Jesus is and who he chooses to surround himself with. In Matthew 26, it tells us that they were meeting at this man named Simon the leper. You know, it would be a tough thing to have your name also be identified with the thing that you have struggled with or the biggest hurt of your life. But Simon seemed to be okay with being called Simon the leper because it was a statement of who he once was before he met Jesus. So I want you to picture with me a dinner table at Simon the leper's house. And if you had leprosy, had ever had leprosy, you were never allowed to to host anyone in your home. You you ate alone. And yet Jesus himself is there. And it says as they're sitting around the table, there's also a man named Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. A woman named Martha who had the gift of hospitality and a woman named Mary, a previously very broken woman whose life, whose previous life might have made her a lot of money, but it left her very empty. And sitting around this table with the disciples and others that were there, this woman, Mary, grabbed something that was very costly to her, and she broke it. It was a bottle of perfume, and she poured it over Jesus' head as an an act of, of unbelievable worship, so much so that some of the disciples gave her a hard time about it, and they spoke to each other like, what a waste. We could have used that money to, we would say we could have used that money to buy new things for the church or to further the ministry. And Jesus actually spoke stern words to those guys and said, what she has done 
is an act of worship to me. She is preparing me for my burial. Jesus loved this act of worship so much. It's, it says in, in John that it was actually written for all the world to read as a testimony to the woman for us to be inspired by. Wednesday, well, nothing is really writ- written about Wednesday, which that in itself says something. That while there was no teaching in the temple that day, there was a lot of things to do to get ready. And it also shows that Jesus spent a whole day with the people that were the closest to him. Not just in the city teaching, not just talking and debating with the Pharisees, not trying to prove who he was, just trying to be with the people that he loved most. It was probably on Wednesday that Judas went and met with the Pharisees and the scribes to try to figure out the opportune time to betray Jesus. Thursday, Thursday things changed. It wasn't so much setting the church in order, but it was setting things straight about his purpose. See, Thursday was the beginning of what was called the Passover feast. It says on Thursday that Jesus sent some of his disciples to prepare Passover dinner. This is an important part of Jesus's last week on earth. Because you see, Passover started 1,400 years before And what Jesus was going to do the rest of this evening was going to complete what that meal and that dinner symbolized and started. Jesus will be the completion of that. So as he begins to set things straight about his purpose, we actually now come into the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. From Thursday evening until Friday morning when he was crucified at 9 a.m. The last 12 hours started with dinner. And not too uncommon to dinners that were had around this table with this particular group of people, there was some heated discussion. As brothers do, brothers and sisters, siblings, they can argue around the dinner table. But a discussion arose amongst the disciples about who was Jesus's best follower. If any of you have watched The Chosen, I think they do a great job depicting how some of those conversations might have gone. Talking about which brother group was better and who followed Jesus better. But then Jesus does something so interesting. Instead of telling them to zip it and that they don't know what they're talking about, it says when they had finished eating, Jesus stood up from the table and he walked over and he grabbed a basin of water and a towel and he came back to the table and he took off his outer garment and wrapped it around his waist. This would have been very odd 
for the disciples, for their rabbi, their teacher, the one they're following, to do this act of service. This was actually an act that was relegated to your, your house help. So while they're arguing about greatness, Jesus goes and he grabs this, this bowl of water and he starts going person to person and washing their feet. Now to us, Foot washing is something that you might have heard about at church or seen someone do at a, a husband and wife do when they, when they get married. But it was a custom when you came over to someone's house back then, you would leave your shoes at the door, but your feet were nasty. And so it was the job of the help to the owner of the house would provide someone to wash your feet. Now, this is telling because they're arguing over greatness, no doubt. None of all of them passed the, the bowl of water. They're like, oh, no one there to wash my feet. I'm hungry. And come in, but, but Jesus does this act. And then he says this, as I have done for you, you should do for one another. Then he makes this statement in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. This is his purpose. How should they love one another? He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have this love for one another. The next thing he does after the foot washing is he identifies someone at the table that is going to betray him to be crucified after the foot washing. And they they look around the table and they're like, is it me? Is it me? And it's like this whole big deal. And then Judas, after being identified, up and leaves the room and I imagine there was an awkward silence. And then Peter, God bless him, says something along the lines of, Lord, I will never do anything like that. I've been with you for so long. I've been following you. I love you. Everyone may, may betray you, but I promise I never will. I'm changed, man. I'm different. I'm not like I used to be. And Jesus looks at Peter, I imagine, with so much love in his eyes, because I've made statements like that. And he said, Peter, I tell you the truth, tonight, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. Peter was like, no way. I'll never do that. And then after that, Jesus goes, at the end of their dinner, and he does something with them that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. When you came in tonight, hopefully you grabbed a cracker and a little thing of juice. If you didn't, will you raise your hand and we're going to pass it out to you because I want to take communion together. One in the middle here, some over here, Nate. Right here, Spencer. Keep your hand up. They'll bring it to you. But I want to talk about communion for a second. 
Did you know that what we're reading about here on this Thursday night, when Jesus instituted what we call communion, it was the only time it was ever taken before Jesus died. Just this once. Every other time since then has been after Jesus died. And we take it in remembrance. But I thought, how cool would it be as best we can to use our best imagination to sit at the table with Jesus and his disciples, knowing that we have all done things that we said we wouldn't do again, that we have all fallen short in ways that we wish we wouldn't have. But maybe in our mind's eye, we could sit at the table with Jesus and his followers and just be around them, and we could take the Lord's Supper with them. It says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, when he said new covenant, the meaning of these words could never be complete without the Passover meal. For just as the children of Israel were shielded from God's judgment in Egypt, By the blood of the innocent Passover lamb, he was declaring to them that we are covered and forgiven through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So would you take your bread? And let's hear Jesus' word, take, eat, all of you, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we take this cup as the blood of Jesus. Then it says, After they had finished dinner, and taken communion, they sung a hymn, and Jesus said, Come, let us go, for the hour was late.
can be seated. I can't help it. I'm going to stand up for every song. I'm just letting you guys know now. So you can stand with me if you want to. As Jesus continued to set things straight about his purpose, after they left the upper room, it's commonly called, they went for a walk. They walked from where they were eating through the city, past the temple, out to the Mount of Olives. Has anyone been to Israel? Awesome. I'll, I'll be able to raise my hand one day. I've just been there in my mind. But as they were walking to the Mount of Olives, See, all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they go straight to when Jesus was praying in the garden. But John's gospel has this beautiful little section of teaching where it wasn't to the masses. It wasn't on the Temple Mount. It was with his disciples following him through the city as they walked out to the Mount of Olives. You can read about it in John chapter 15 and 16. But he was continuing to remind the disciples about his big picture plan, his purpose. It was a talking as they were walking. This is where he says that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would come back and get them. This is where he tells them that it is good that he leaves so he can send the Holy Spirit to them. And they were confused about that. It's where he tells them that um, he reminds them about his plan and his promise. And he says two things to them. Number one, he says, what I want you guys to do in the meantime, is they would have been walking through these vineyards. He would have looked over and he would have seen all these vines and grapes. And he would sit and he, this is where he says, Abide in me um, as, a, as, a vi- as the branch cannot produce fruit on its own, but it abides in the vine. So you abide in me. If you abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. So he's using pictures as he walks along, and he was like, this is the purpose. Don't forget, because what's about to happen, they're going to freak out. So he's setting things straight with, these, with his followers. So he says, abide in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He says to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may, be, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Have you ever heard that verse before? That's where Jesus spoke it to them. As they were walking, it wasn't a classroom setting, it was walking to the Mount of Olives, to the garden of Gethsemane. And they would have crossed over this brook called the Brook Kidron. And he would have looked down at this brook as they were walking, and it flowed past the temple. This brook would have been solid red with blood for the many lambs that were being sacrificed in the temples on behalf of the families that were in Jerusalem celebrating Passover. And then it says in John 17, Jesus prayed for them and for us. 
You want to know what Jesus was thinking on the night that he was going to be arrested? The last thing that entered his mind before he was tortured and killed. It was a conversation that he had with his father in heaven, and you can read about it in John chapter 17. And somewhere in those moments, as they were walking over to the garden, Thursday became Friday. It was the middle of the night. Jesus took Peter and James and John. He said, come with him a little farther. And then there he asked them to pray with him. He went away and prayed and they fell asleep. Because it was late and they were full. And so Jesus went a little farther and he prayed and he came back and they were sleeping and he woke them up and he says, you guys, will you pray with me? This is a tough night for me. Will you pray with me? Yes, Jesus, we'll pray for you. And then he went a little further and they fell asleep again. And as he was away praying, this is where Jesus' sweat mingled with blood for the burden was so heavy and the stress was so real of what was about to happen, that he prayed this prayer. Father, if there is any other way to do what I came to accomplish, if there is any other way, he said, would you take this cup from me? This thing that he was going to have to drink, being the wrath of God and the punishment for sin. He's like, if there's any other way to make people right with you, can we do that? He said, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. After he prayed that prayer, he came back and they were asleep a third time. And he woke them up and he said, arise for my betrayer is at hand. And as they got up and were wiping the sleep out of their eyes at about 3 a.m., They would have been able to see a procession of people, not with headlamps or flashlights. They used torches back then. I don't know how many lumens they were. But they were coming down the mountainside. And a group of people, some say hundreds, came down to the garden. Leading the charge was one of Jesus' closest followers. His name was Judas, Judas Iscariot. And Judas had it worked out with those because it was dark and they were like, how do we know which one to arrest when we get there? So Judas had it worked out with them. The one that I kiss, that's the one. So Judas comes down and some sort of greeting, I don't know what it would have been like, but Jesus allowed him to embrace him and to kiss him, which is a common hello And Jesus says to to Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then Jesus said to the crowd coming down, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And the scripture tells us that he said, I am he. And when he spoke those words, You miss it when you just read through the text. If you're reading quickly, it says, and everyone fell back from him. And it wasn't like, it was when he spoke the words that he spoke to Moses, I am. 
Who is it that you're looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, I am. When he spoke those words, the power that emitted from him knocked every soldier, every person that was coming to look for him, it knocked them flat on their back. And then they re-stood up, it says, and sort of collected themselves. And Jesus said again, so who are you looking for? And they said, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, that is me. And they grabbed him by the arms. And Peter, who just a few hours earlier said, I'm your ride or die, Jesus. I'll never let you down. This was his moment. And it says that Peter grabbed a sword out of someone's sheath, the nearest one he could, and he just took a swing. And it says that he chopped off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Now, there's lots of theories about how Peter probably was behind him because if he chopped off, if you're right-handed, left ear, something, the the guy was not facing him. Regardless of if the person was facing Peter, not facing Peter, Peter, all he could think to do was to kill. If this is what I have to do to save Jesus, this is my chance. Have we ever lashed out in anger at someone because we don't understand what is being said about our Lord? About intentions that people have to defame or hurt or stop the gospel? And so we lash out. Yeah, Peter knew what that was like too. And, Pete, and you know what Jesus did? He didn't say, nice swing, Pete. He said, stop this. You know not what you are doing. And he picked up this man's ear and he healed him in front of all these people that were going to arrest him. 3 a.m. Jesus would be on the cross at 9 a.m. In the next six hours that followed, Jesus experienced complete and total rejection from mankind. He was rejected by the Jewish people as there were trials which were presided over by the high priest of the Jewish faith that represented the church that Jesus is God over, pronounced him guilty, and they wanted nothing to do with him. He was rejected from the secular leaders of the day Because they, like so many others, reduced Jesus to someone who they wanted to do magic tricks to prove himself. Says Herod was looking forward to seeing Jesus. And when he did, he asked Jesus to perform some sign and Jesus wouldn't do it. So he rejected him. He was rejected from his closest followers as he was being arrested. Peter was sitting outside by a fire pit. I think of, I don't know why, but I think of a trash can in an alley in the middle of the night with people warming themselves by the the fire. Think of like all dogs go to heaven or something like that. And And they're doing that and there's Roman soldiers around and it's cold and Peter's warming himself. And someone says, hey, you're with Jesus, aren't you? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. 
denied Jesus. Jesus said it would happen. Then a little girl comes by and is like, no, I've seen you before. I know that you're with him. And Peter's like, I don't know what you're talking about, denies a second time, denies a third. Jesus was denied by his closest followers. And finally, in these six hours, he would be denied by the crowds. The same people, many of them that yelled Hosanna just five days before, would request that a known criminal be granted freedom and that Jesus be crucified in his place. All this was written to fulfill something that was written about Jesus many years earlier that I want to read to you guys. Think about all that I just said. Now listen to this in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard of us from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, antiquated, excuse me, acquainted with grief, and as one whom men, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth at his trials. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, it, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Can you tell this is about the Messiah? And he shall bear their iniquities, last verse. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's sing this next song.
First set, Jesus set the church in order. Then he cleared up his purpose. And he said, this is not something that I'm trying to escape, but this is the actual reason why I'm here. This is the purpose I was sent to fulfill as written about in Isaiah 53. And then, last but not least, it's time to set the world in order. The worst six hours in human history go something like this. First, Jesus was arrested. Then he was beaten for fun. He was punched, spit in his face, made fun of. He was flogged. You could say flogging is like whipping times a lot. Traditionally, the accused person in the Roman Empire stood naked in a public square. And the flogging covered the area from the shoulders to the upper legs. And the whip wasn't just a whip. It was a whip that had multiple tails on it mixed with glass and bone and pieces of metal. Typically, a lot of people died from this part of the torture and execution. Ripped skin, pieces of skin off his back, and when he was beaten to a pulp, they put a purple robe on his back, one, to make fun of him, but two, to try to stop the bleeding so they could make the pain last longer. And then shoved a crown of thorns on his head. And then they gave him the cross member of the cross beam of his cross, and he had to carry it several miles to the place of the skull, it was called, or has come to know as Calvary Hill. And they would march him through the middle of the city, this road called the Via Della Rosa, and the whole town would come out. And you can imagine they would hurl insults and hurl rocks and hurl everything that they could at, at Jesus. And he was humiliated and broken, and bleeding. And on the way, his body gave out from the torture. And it says that there was a man, Simon of Cyrene. Luke wrote about him and said, you can go talk to him. It's Rufus' Rufus's dad. Luke would throw those details in because he expected people who read his gospel to go find the eyewitnesses that he was talking about and ask him about these things. So Simon of Cyrene was compelled to come in and carry Jesus and the crossbeam of his cross with him to the top of this hill, really, at a crossroads where people would cross by and see what happens to those who cross the Roman Empire. It was in that place Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion was equal parts torture and death. We get our word excruciating from the Greek word for crucifixion. And I do this every year, (laughs) but it's still hard to like think about it. 
Jesus in this state. Being treated this way with such cruelty and hate. What's even harder for me is that it was not by mistake, but it was his plan all along. See, he was willing to endure the jokes about being a bastard child, a fatherless kid, a false prophet, just a crazy person with a ragtag group of followers that the world didn't care much about, the one who let men and women follow him, the one who was rejected everywhere he went, even by his closest followers. That was his plan. Not only all of that, it was his plan, and he was willing to endure the flogging and the beating and the cross. He was willing to go through all of that, and his father was willing to let him go through it all for me. When they crucified him, they put the nails in his wrists because otherwise they probably would have ripped out of his hands when his lifeless body hung. And then they raised the cross for all to see what happens to those who the world rejects. Somebody, as a cruel joke, tried to give him some, it says, gall mixed with wine. It's like a painkiller. Not to alleviate the pain, but to make the spectacle last longer. And then they hung a sign above his head, mocking him and said, this is what the king of the Jews looks like. This is their king, the king of the Jews. And then the mocking came from the crowd, save yourself. You healed all these other people. Can't you do it for yourself? Just adding insult to injury. Not only that, the criminals, he says he was hung, Isaiah 53 says that he was hung with the transgressors. There was one on his right, one on his left. And they were saying, save us and yourself if you really are God. And then one of them has a moment where he looks at the other criminal and says, don't you get it? This man has done nothing wrong. We are here. This is just punishment for the crimes that we have committed. But this man is innocent, and this criminal turns to Jesus and has this moment, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says the the coolest thing. He looks at him, and he says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Death on the cross eventually came from suffocation. You could no longer breathe. It wasn't from the nails. It it could last days, but after being beaten and losing all this blood and hanging there with no strength, you took all of your strength and you had to push up on the nails that were in your feet to take a breath. And so eventually you couldn't muster the strength to take a breath anymore and and you would suffocate. So in Jesus' final week, in his final 12 hours, in his final days, he says seven final things. Now they must have hurt like crazy, but they must have been worth every ounce of pain for him to say these things. 
First thing he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. As he looked out to the mocking crowd. This tells us that forgiveness is our biggest need. Because sin is our biggest problem. Then he says, today you will be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross. Which tells us that a couple of things. Number one, eternity is real. It is certain. And heaven is nearer than you think. The Bible says when we take our last breath on earth, we take our first breath in eternity. Then he says, as he looks out, he sees his mom there. And then he sees John. And he says, woman, behold your son. And behold your mother. Took everything he could to make sure his mother was taken care of after he is gone. Showing us that people need to be loved and looked after and taken care of. That we need to care for others the way Jesus would want his mom to be cared after. Then he said this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tells us that when he said this, darkness fell over the land for three hours. He had been on the cross for three hours to this point. 9 a.m. and about at noon, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And it says, darkness fell over the whole land. Not a cloudy day, but the sun was veiled from everyone. And in this moment, the judgment of all the sin ever committed, yours, mine, Peter's, Judas's, all the sin ever committed was placed on Jesus. He became guilty of every sin humanity had ever committed. Every person that was hurling insults, that had punched Jesus in the face, that had all of it. God the Father placed the punishment for that sin on his own son. And the perfect unity that had always existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was broken. As the Father looked away from his own son. And in this moment, Jesus experienced the darkest, loneliest, most forsaken place any person has ever felt. Your loneliness, Jesus knows it. Have you been betrayed? He understands. The next one is trivial for some but it was worth him saying after it was quiet for about three hours, Jesus mustered these words. I thirst. I believe it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, the reality of what his body had been through. It's a reality of death by crucifixion and flogging. 
It's the body's response to extreme loss of blood showing Jesus. It wasn't easy for Jesus to do this. I think sometimes we think Jesus is God. He paid for my sin, but he's God, so it wasn't that big of a deal. God can just forgive. And I think this helps us to understand that what Jesus did was really hard. And it cost him everything. But he did it anyways. And I also think it was to wet his lips for what he was about to say next. Because the next thing it says, he yelled it really loud. So he would have mustered all of his strength, lifted up on the nails, and he yelled, It is finished. What he came to do, the father turning away for the moment and placing the judgment of all sin for all of mankind on his own son, he passed the test. He truly was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now when you hear it is finished and when you envision Jesus on the cross, can you understand that when he said this, it was not the cry of a victim but it was the shout of a victor. The work he was sent to do was finished, and guess what? It worked. And last but not least, he said to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. On the last day of Jesus' life, his first words and his last words were the same. Remember when he was praying in the garden and he said, If there's any other way, can we do that? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's in in essence, it's saying, into your hands, I commit my life. And then at the very last thing he says, he committed his spirit into the same place he had already committed his life. And with that, the Bible tells us, Jesus breathed his last.
stay up for this one. This last one will be short. So I'll steal this for you. <laughs> 